Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey y'all, welcome back. We are on episode 25. This is June 24th through 30th, and we are reading Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 through 21. And the title of this episode is He is Risen. And today we are talking about the resurrection. And I am so excited because last episode we talked about the crucifixion and it was kind of a dark and dreary episode. And, you know, I think it's important to focus on the crucifixion and know how important it is. But it's always Friday. And you got to remember that Sunday is coming and that promise of new life is coming. And today we get to talk about the new life that um, came with the resurrection. And so I'm really excited to talk about it today. So in Come Follow Me, we're going to go ahead and just start right out with Come Follow Me. The first thing it says in the introduction is it talks about how the life of Jesus Christ to many may have seemed like a failure at first. You know, he healed so many people. He raised Lazarus from the dead and everyone was convinced that this was the Messiah who's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, and then he was crucified on the cross. Everyone's kind of like, what? He saved all these other people. Why couldn't he save himself, you know? If you look at Christ's life, the way that he lived, the way that people responded to him, he was mocked sometimes. He was scorned. The leaders of his day put him to death. They plotted against him by any judgment of the world. His career, I'm saying that with quotation marks, was not necessarily successful. You know, he didn't have a lot of riches. He didn't have a lot of wealth. He didn't have a lot of, like, worldly power and worldly influence and things like that. But we know that he was the most important person that ever lived, that his career here on earth was tremendously successful because he was about his father's business, not the world's business. And then this here... Is just kind of like grand finale to everything that he has done while he's been here on earth. The resurrection is the grand finale to all of this. And so I'm really excited that we get to talk about it. Come follow me in the introduction. It says, We know that the silence of the tomb was temporary and that Christ's saving work was just beginning. He is found today, not among the dead, but among the living. His teachings would not be silenced, for his loyal disciples would preach the gospel to all nations, trusting his promise that he would be with them always, even unto the end of the world. And so I love that. He's found not among the dead, but among the living. And we can find him in our own lives and in our own hearts as we study the resurrection. So I'm really excited to do that. The first section in Come Follow Me, it says, Because Jesus was resurrected... I too will be resurrected. It talks about looking at the resurrection through the views of some witnesses, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to answer the questions that asks here first. How do you feel as you read about the Savior's resurrection? Consider how it has affected you, your outlook on your life, your relationship with others, your faith in Christ, and your faith in other gospel truths. Okay, so... I want to talk about a moment where in my life where I probably have been the most grateful for the doctrine of the resurrection. I think a lot of times we talk about it and we associate it with death. You know, we're so grateful that we're going to be able to see loved ones again someday. And that is incredibly powerful and an incredible promise. And that, that is an amazing promise. But I think the moment in my life where I felt personally the impact of the resurrection probably most strongly. It's a couple years ago and I was going through some chronic pain stuff, chronic illness stuff, and I was just in pain. Um, Constant pain from my head to my toes, in my joints and all kinds of stuff, and just agonizing pain that would not stop 24-7. Like I was waking up in the middle of the night just hurting and there was nothing we could really figure out because the doctors had no idea what was going on with me. And so, I mean, this, and this was going on for like weeks, like going on for weeks and weeks. I just hurt. 
I was just really frustrated with my body at that point because I'm like, you are constantly hurting me. Like, why are you hurting body? And why are you making me crazy? You know, it was just, I was really frustrated with my body. Like it was awful. And I went to this, um, I think it was a baby shower maybe, or it was a wedding shower. I'm not sure. It was one of those things. One of those parties, you know, where all the church ladies get together. And the sweet lady comes up to me and she's like, how are you doing? I can tell that, you know, things, things are not going well. And I turned to her and I burst into tears because, you know, that's totally like me. You guys have seen on this podcast or heard on this podcast. I burst into tears at like the drop of a hat, but I burst into tears and I said, I am so grateful for the doctrine of the resurrection that I will be made perfect in Christ. And I will never have to worry about this pain or this anguish or worry about, you know, why my brain's not working correctly right now, why my body's not working correctly right now. That will be over. And for someone who struggles with her body and is in a constant battle with her body every day, the promise of not experiencing pain, of not experiencing fatigue anymore, of not experiencing like a whole myriad of symptoms that I have to put up with every single day is amazing. Like I'm bawling my eyes out right now just talking about it. And beyond that, the promise of a body made perfect in Christ is the promise of a spirit made perfect in Christ. So all the things in this world that pain my spirit, that pain my heart because of sin and because of, you know, the wickedness of this world, is going to be gone. All of my sins are gone. All the things that I've ever done wrong are gone because of the atonement and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what it means to me. Beyond that, the bonds of my family, that my family members will be resurrected again one day, that I will be able to see all those that I love, those who have passed on before and those who will pass on, that I will be able to see them again one day is amazing to me. Sorry, guys. I know we've just started the episode and it's already like a boo-hoo fest, but I mean, I just feel so strongly about Christ, my Savior, and His power to not only redeem from sin and from, you know, the evilness of this world, but also to redeem from pain and physical illness and mental illness and all those things as well, that they will be made perfect and that we will be made whole again. So I have such a strong testimony of that, and I'm so grateful that I get a chance to share it with you guys as we are talking about that this week. So the next question that Come Follow Me asks, besides how do you feel about the resurrection, it says, consider how has it affected you? outlook on life. And again, as someone who struggles with chronic pain, I think if I did not know that one day this pain would go away and I would be made perfect, life would be a whole lot harder for me. Um, You know, I admin a Facebook group for people who have chronic illness and people who struggle with chronic illness. And so I have lots of friends that I've met who deal with varying different illnesses that also cause pain and all kinds of issues that they deal with. And it's interesting to me because there's two girls that I especially, you know, I co-admin with and they're very different. One is she's a born again Christian and the other one is like probably as far opposite as you can get from a born again Christian, but still very, very sweet. It's interesting to me the way that they, their faith or lack of faith, I guess, in the case of the other one, influences their outlook on life. You know, the one that's a born again Christian, you know, every time she's in the hospital, she's like asking for prayers and she's like, I can feel your prayers. I can feel the faith working, you know, keep praying for me. I can get through this. I can do this. And then the other one is very fatalistic. She's like, I'm going to do whatever I can here in this life because after this life, she's like, I'm done like this is it. So she gets like laws passed for chronic disability and things like that, um, advocates very strongly for it because she is convinced that this is it, you know? Whereas my friend who believes that she will live after this life is very much, I guess, very much more optimistic. Um, And so it's interesting to see kind of just like the aura that these two different friends have. And so my belief of the resurrection helps me be a little bit more optimistic. You know, I'm like, yeah, I hurt now. Or yeah, I've got all these different things that are going wrong with me. You know, it's like driving a car and you start hearing clunking and then you start kind of, you know, (laughs) you feel wobbling and stuff like that. There's an extra little vibration that wasn't there, you know, last week. That's like how driving my body is. (laughs) I kind of feel sometimes. But after the resurrection, that's all going to go away and it's all going to be perfected. And that helps me get through those moments of chronic pain and illness and things like that. The times where I'm like, okay, so I'm infertile, but after the resurrection, I won't be. And that's a beautiful blessing. You know, we talk about all the different times where apostles have promised that 
every blessing that the Lord has will be recognized. Maybe not in this life, but in the life after. And that's another promise that comes with the resurrection. So it helps me when I get bogged down by all the things that are wrong in this life, or all the things that hurt in this life, or all the things I don't have in this life, to look forward to the resurrection and past the resurrection. And know that today may be Friday, but Sunday is coming. And to put my eyes on Sunday and the promise of what Sunday and the resurrection brings. How has the resurrection affected your relationship with others? Um, This is an interesting question. I had to ponder upon this for a bit. I think it has changed the way I think about people, especially people who are close to me, who are imperfect because we all are imperfect. And I think a lot of times about after this life, what will it be like to know them? You know, I think a lot about my husband. He's got some health stuff that he deals with too. And I think after this life, when that health stuff is kind of pulled away, I think he will be an entirely different person. Changed for the better, of course, because I see flashes of that person that he could truly be. And, you know, just the amazing Christ-like attributes that he naturally has, if he can get over, you know, the different physical hurdles and stuff that he deals with in this world. And so that changes my relationship with him, because then I know that, you know, we were married in the temple, and I'm not just married to the man I'm married in this life, but I'm also married to the man after this life. And I look forward to meeting him. And what he will be like after the resurrection. Because I think he will be totally different. I think a lot of us will be totally different once we don't have to deal with all the everyday, you know, yuck that we deal with all the time. You know, a lot of other people who are close to me. I have a sister who deals with a lot of health problems. I mean, and serious health problems. Like, mine are chronic and yeah... I feel whiny, though, when I even talk to her about it because she has, like, serious health problems. Like, she has one lung. That's a whole other story, but, um, yeah, I mean, serious health problems. And that has radically changed the course of her life. And so I look forward to seeing who she is after the resurrection and how that changes her personality when all that is taken away. You know, I think of another friend I have whose father died when she was very young, and that's kind of changed her personality and shape the course of her life. And so I look forward to seeing her reunited with her father and what that must be like. You know, I think that will be really an amazing experience. And so it, it helps me look at people with an eternal perspective, I guess. You know, someone comes and they're a little bit cranky and they just kind of, you know, are a little bit nasty. I'm like, well, you know, maybe something in this life is bothering them. You know, treat them like the child of God they are because this is temporary after the resurrection is going to be permanent. So I think that helps my relationship with others. How does it strengthen your faith in Christ? I was actually thinking this week about the resurrection and the atonement. And, you know, the thought I had was, you know, Christ, when he's going through the atonement, he knows that the resurrection is coming and that he will live again. And so my question to myself was, I'm like, do I think that if Christ didn't know that, If he was just going to die and lay down his life and he was not going to live again, would he still have done the atonement? And I think he would. I think he still would have laid down his life and his chance at eternal salvation for the rest of us. I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he did live again and that we have the resurrection as part of it. But that is just amazing love. That is amazing grace is what that is. And unfailing love would be the way I would describe it. Bottomless love. And that just, it blows my mind how much he loves us and how much he cares for us. And the resurrection is a huge part of that. Um, It also amazes me. His power is what the resurrection is a huge testament to me about. That he is literally able to change a natural law of death and turn it it on its head and able to rise again. You know, he has power over the grave. He has power over death. And because he has risen, so will I. And that is the promise that he gives to us. And that is a beautiful promise. And how does this affect your faith in other gospel truths? Well, honest and truly, I have to say that my testimony centers on my faith in Jesus Christ and my faith in his atonement and my faith in his resurrection. So if that is the keystone to my testimony, then yeah, it affects everything else because now I can believe everything else that he's taught and everything else that his gospel teaches because that is the bedstone and the cornerstone of my testimony. And so that strength that I have in my testimony of the resurrection and of the atonement definitely affects, you know, the rest of my faith and other gospel truths. And honestly, it affects the rest of my life because everything I try to do, 
I try and focus on that atonement. I try and focus on my Savior. And so that powerfully impacts the rest of my life. Okay, so now I want to pick back up with the first question that it asked in the section, which is, how might these different witnesses who witnessed the resurrection, how might these witnesses have felt? And we're going to talk about some of the other witnesses, like the apostles and stuff like that, in other sections of Come Follow Me. So in this particular section, I want to talk about the women. You know, we have, it mentions Mary Magdalene, and it mentions the other Mary, and it mentions Salome, and a couple other women that gather together, and they go down to the tomb, and they find the tombstone rolled away. And I have to think, you know, I wonder if they realized what was coming, or if they kind of had a hope that it would come, but they weren't sure if it was going to come. And there's actually a phrase that it talks about. This is the scripture in Matthew 28, 8, and they're talking to the angel, which, pause, I'm going to talk about the angels real quick. Um, did you notice that in some of the gospels it says there was one angel, and then in some of the gospels it says there were two angels, and then the Joseph Smith translation says there were two angels, and I was kind of like, what is with the deal? Like, we have different counts of angels here. Like, was it one or was it two? And... I read a really wise commentary on this, and what the commentary said was, just because the gospel mentions one angel doesn't mean there wasn't another one hanging around. You know, you go to the store, hey, I went to Target yesterday, and I saw so-and-so and and their kid, but then if I'm telling that story later, I'll just say, I just saw so-and-so. And so you may have seen two people at Target, but you're just talking about the one person. This could be the same way, especially when we have these Gospels that are written years later or written by, you know, obviously it had to be the eyewitness account of these women because they're the only ones there. So, you know, yes, there was definitely one angel that they interacted and they spoke to. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't another angel hanging around in the Gospel accounts that say that there was one angel. I just wanted to add that in. All right. Unpause. So they're at the tomb. They're talking to the angel, um, I guess the spokes angel, right? And he tells them, go quickly, tell his disciples that Christ is risen. He is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him. And lo, I have told you. And so this is eight. And it says, they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. And that phrase really stuck with me this week, fear and great joy. Have you ever felt fear and great joy at the same time? Like, I really had to struggle to find a time in my life where I felt fear and great joy all at the same time. And I don't think it's necessarily fear of, like, the angels or whatever. I think the fear that they were probably feeling in that moment was the fear of, what if this this is not true? Can it really be true? This is almost too good to be true. Like, I don't know if I believe this or not. You know? It's like, if you found out all of a sudden that you won the lottery, you would be, like, so happy, but still, like, there's part of you that's like, is this for real? Like, I'm afraid that this is not really for real. Like, you know, kind of holding you back. That fear and great joy, that just really stood out to me a lot this week. But so they're feeling this fear and great joy. And they're sitting there and they're afraid because, you know, obviously Christ isn't there. They're afraid someone's taken his body. And so Mary, and I'm reading from John 20, 11, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And you know, of course she's being sad and she's crying because she thinks that the body, the body of someone she loved and respected has been taken and desecrated, you know, um, that's got to be terrifying, right? And it says, you know, she looks at the empty tomb. And then in 14, and she turned herself back and she saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And I love this scene so much, and it is so touching for so many reasons. But I love that he appeared to a woman, and here's why. First of all, this shows that this story was not made up, that the story was not fictionalized. Because if it was made up in this particular culture that was so man-centered and so man-driven, there is no way that Christ would have appeared to a woman first. Absolutely not. There's no way that Christ would have appeared to a woman first if they were making this story up. So the fact that he did, to me, is proof that this is a true story, that this really happened. The second reason, which I heard on a podcast 
today. It's called 30 Minutes in the New Testament. It's pretty good. You can check it out. But they actually were talking about this. And they made the point that in the Garden of Eden, it was a woman that caused the fall. You know, Eve took a bite of the apple. She bought the big one. And because of that, we were, you know, created in this world where there is sin and iniquity and sorrow and physical affliction, you know, that kind of thing. And so Christ after he has defeated all that, he's defeated all the sin and all the iniquity and all the affliction and all the sorrow. He's defeated all that. He's come back from the dead. He's overcome everything that Eve, after taking the bite of that apple, and he appears to another woman and says, I'm back and I defeated that. What a cool way to wrap that circle, you know, or to finish the circle of what, you know, started in the Garden of Eden, and he's resurrected, and he's come back, and he's defeated, you know, the fall. And I thought that was a really cool way to look at it, as well as him appearing to a woman. And I just, I love that he just looks on her with so much tenderness. It shows to me, too, the way that Christ defied convention. Because if we were to look at, I think even in the modern day church, we would think that Christ would appear to a man more than he would appear to a woman, right? But he chose to appear to a woman, which again, in his society would have been very abnormal. And I love that he's constantly breaking these norms. Even in his resurrection, he breaks the norms of the time and what would be normal. And so I thought that was really cool. I love the experience of the women in the garden. And you, I mean, you can even see the way that the culture looks at women because, you know, they go back to tell the apostles, hey, we've seen the risen Lord. And the exact words as we read them in Luke 24, 11 says, and their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. So you're like, oh, you're just a bunch of hysterical women. You know, we don't believe you. You're just making things up. Idle tales, right? And they didn't believe them. I mean, the fact that then Christ, I mean, entrusts the women to go and tell the apostles that what has happened, I think is just really special. And so I really enjoyed reading that again. Um, And I talked about this in my Easter episode, but I'm going to say it again because I just really love it. Like, this has always just been one of my favorite scripture stories. In fact, my favorite picture of Christ is of him appearing to Mary there in the garden. And I love that, which, you know what, (laughs) I just put two and two together, that there was the Garden of Eden, and now we're in another garden where the tomb is. And I'm like, oh, two gardens, two women. Like, it's just, it completes the cycle. It's so perfect. I just love love that. But anyway, the picture that I really love, it shows Mary in the garden, and it shows Christ there, and he's looking down upon her with such love. And when I was a little girl, I really, really loved this painting because it had pink flowers in it, and the pink flowers matched my bedroom. And so that was the reason I love the painting. But now I love all that it symbolizes. And to me, it also symbolizes that I have every right to a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior that any man does too. That he loves me just as much as he loves my brothers in the gospel. And that men also have the same right to have this relationship with their Lord and Savior too. We are all children of God. We are all one under Christ. And I just think that that is a beautiful blessing that we get out of this story. So I'm grateful to share that story of the women this week. So let's talk about the road to Emmaus, okay? In this section, it says we can invite the Savior to abide with us. It talks about the experience of the two traveling disciples who met the resurrected Savior, and it can have parallels to our own path of discipleship. And what connections do you see between this account in Luke and our experiences as a follower of Christ today? So I want to go into the road to Emmaus here real quick and kind of talk about some of the things that I see that happens. So we're going to start out in Luke 24, 13 and 13 through 17. This section is kind of where Jesus kind of like comes on the scene. He kind of joins up with these disciples and we read, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they talked together of the things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? Okay, so a couple different questions I had about this particular section right here. Where is Emmaus? The answer is no one really knows. Um, If you look down in like the little footnotes, our scriptures say that it's about 12 kilometers or about 7.5 miles from Jerusalem. There's other different 
variations of the translations and the different accounts at the time, people really aren't sure what the actual distance was. And because of that, they're not really sure where Emmaus was. There's a couple different cities that like kind of sound like Emmaus in the area, but they're not really sure if that was the old Emmaus or if it was a different city. And so no one really knows where Emmaus was. But so these guys are basically walking about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem to this little town, wherever it is. Okay. Um, One of the things I think that's really interesting about this is that these are just regular guys. Like, these aren't the superstar apostles that we hear about all the time. You know, James and John and Simon Peter and Andrew and, you know, all of them. This, this, these are regular guys. This is just like random yo's that you would see in your congregation on Sunday, right? And so I kind of like that. And then the last thing I think that's really interesting about this section is that, you know, he walks up behind him and he kind of pulls the mom trick where, you know, you've, you've heard your kids kind of talking about something and you're like, what's going on? So you walk up and you're like, hey, what, what you guys talking about? You know, you want to explain it to me? I pull this all the time at work. When kids are talking about something I know is sketchy, I'm like, hey, so what you guys talking about over here? Like, explain it to me. And so he's kind of doing the same thing. He sees these guys. They're deep in conversation. He knows they're talking about him and all the events that have transpired. And it looks like, you know, it says while they commune together, while they talk together and reasoned. So it sounds to me like they're trying to reason out, like, you know, what is truth and what is fiction? Because in sensationalized events like this, you know, there's always going to be like a little bit of fiction worked in with the facts and they're not really sure, you know, what's the drama and what's the truth. And I think that that, that's probably what they're trying to reason together. Also, it mentions a little bit later that they're sad. And I think that they probably are sad that, you know, if they've been following Christ, that he's gone. And so I think they've got kind of like, the sad tone to what they're trying to reason together and talk about. So the next section in Luke 24, 18 through 24. So this is where the disciples lay out the facts of what they know. You know, putting drama aside, this is what we know. And we read in 18, And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, that thou hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they did say unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were of us went to the sepulchre, and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw not. So, here are some things that we know that the disciples know about Christ, some truths that that they know from this particular passage. Number one, they know Jesus' name and they know where he's from. Jesus of Nazareth, right? So they know who he is, and it sounds like they're kind of been in like the bunch of followers that have been kind of following around Christ, okay? So they identify him as a prophet or someone having important spiritual significance. They knew he was mighty indeed in words, so they knew that he was able to do miracles, that he had power, that was not of this earth, kind of supernatural stuff was going on with him. They knew he was crucified, And this is important, too, because, you know, we talked about last week the two different crowds in Jerusalem. Like, there was, like, the regular people who kind of, like, were cool with Jesus. And then there was, like, the chief priests and the rulers who were the ones who were like, crucify him! Okay, so here it says he was crucified by the chief priests and rulers. And I like that they point that out. Because they're like, we didn't do it. It was the chief priests and rulers. And, you know, we didn't have a say in it, really. Okay? So they know that. They also know that he was promised to redeem Israel, that he's the the Redeemer. And they knew that others had said he rose from the dead and that they'd had visitations with angels and things like that. So what this tells me is when I am in my walk with Christ, you know, I come follow me asks, you know, how does this kind of parallel our current walks with Christ is I need to start out with what I know. You know, what faith do I already have? What bedrock of testimony do I already have established? What facts do I know? And kind of gather that together 
and kind of create a platform for when I am seeking truth or when I have questions about the gospel or when I have questions about my life and how I want it to go. You know, I need to figure out the facts first and kind of take stock of what I know and inventory of what I know. And then in Luke 24, 25 through 27 is the next section. And this is where Jesus kind of expounds truth to them. And it says, And then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so in 25 it talks about the O fools and slow of heart to believe, which to me sounds really harsh. But if you go back and you look at, like, the cross-reference, it's all the times where he's saying things like, you know, why are you afraid? Have faith. Be believing. Be at peace. Why are you concerned? You know, all the times where he's like, guys, just have faith. It'll be fine. Just have faith. It'll be fine. And so that's kind of, I think, like, I guess the feeling that's coming along there in 25. Um, And then I think what's interesting is 27 is that he starts with Moses and all the prophets and he expounds unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning to himself. And so I was thinking, I'm like, well, what might he have told them about himself? Well, I found a list for you. So this is what we see about the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is probably some of the things that he has expounded to them. The Messiah is the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised. He is the blessing of Abraham to all nations. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the line of the tribe of Judah, the voice from the burning bush, the Passover lamb, the prophet greater than Moses, the captain of the Lord's army to Joshua, the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth, the son of David who is a king greater than David, the suffering savior of Psalm 22, the good shepherd of Psalm 23, the wisdom of Proverbs, and the savior described in the prophets and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the princely Messiah of Daniel who would establish a kingdom that would never end. So those are some of the passages of the Old Testament that they would be intimately familiar with. Like they would know all these different descriptions of the Messiah. And so he's reminding them of what they already know. And maybe if they didn't already know it, he's kind of, you know, teaching them a little bit about it. So how this parallels to my life. I take what I know, you know, I gathered up my facts that I already know, and then I seek out truth from good sources. Jesus is a great source to seek out truth about himself, right? But some of the sources I can turn to is the scriptures, words of the prophets and apostles in latter days. I can seek my church leaders. I can pray and fast about it and just look for inspiration in good places, right? And so that's where I'm kind of seeking after, you know, reaching outside of what I already know and Maybe the Spirit can bring things to my remembrance that I already know, I just haven't thought of. Or I can go and find new things to learn about whatever subject it is that I'm learning about. And in Luke 24, 28 through 32, this is the next step. Jesus reveals himself. And they drew nigh into the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. And they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, while he opened to us the scriptures? Okay, so here's one of the things, 28 just... It kind of fascinates me a little bit that they're walking with Jesus and he kind of makes like he's going to keep going on without him. And I'm like, did he really plan on going on or was he just kind of like, you know, pretending to so that he can see, you know, where their hearts really are at? Or I don't know what that was all about, but I think it's kind of interesting that they included that little section that he made as though he would have gone further without them. Right. And they constrained him. And I love that word because to me it applies an action like and. A pretty physical action. Like, you know, they reached out and grabbed his arm and said, no, you know, stay with us, stay with us. So pretty physical action. This wasn't just like, oh, hey, come on. You know, like they really meant it, right? And they said, abide with us. You know, don't just come with us, but stay with us. Come stay. We talked about this in a previous episode, what abide means, you know, and it means stay, right? 
And for it is toward evening, the day's far spent, they're giving him excuses to come stay with them, and he went to tarry with them. And then it's interesting to me that he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. Now, these guys, if they're not part of the twelve, right, if they're just part of the regular disciples that were kind of following Christ around, um, they probably didn't know the significance of the breaking bread and blessing it and everything like that. But still... Christ was in their midst. He's breaking bread for them and blessing it. So they still had quite an experience with him. And then lastly, I love that they talk about, did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did we not feel the Holy Ghost while he was talking? It's kind of what they're saying. So, okay, I've got my truth. I've got what I know. I've gone out and I've sought from good sources, you know, to add to that truth that I know. And then I can confirm the truth that I find by having the spirit burn within my heart as I'm looking for this truth, right? And then once I find the truth, I need to seek, you know, constrain it to abide with me and see what I need to do to have that truth tarry with me is kind of the parallel I see between what's happening here and what's happening in my life. And then 33 through 35, they tell the good news. All right, they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. So to me, this says, once you know truth, once you've sought it out, once you've had it confirmed for you, tell others, testify, bear your testimony. When you know the truth of Christ and who he is and what he can do for you, testify. Share that testimony with others. Share your faith with others. Share your light with others. And that just helps your testimony of that truth and that light grow even stronger. All right. Come Follow Me asks, how can you walk with him today and invite him to tarry a little longer? And that is the question to me, I think, that has you know, shown up in my life over the last several months as I've done Come Follow Me is I love the feeling that I get when I'm just delving into these scriptures and I'm, you know, studying Come Follow Me so intently. And I'm like, how can I take that and extend that feeling into the rest of my life? How can I constrain it to abide with me as I go throughout my day when I'm at work or when I'm with my family? Some of the things I think I found out is I need to make sure my life is a place where Jesus would want to tarry. And make sure that the things I'm reading, the things I'm watching, the things I'm listening to are all stuff that he would be okay hanging out with me while we watched, listened, and read, right? I need to make sure that my home is a place that he would feel welcome. And that, you know, my car is a place he would feel welcome. And my job office is a place that he would feel welcome. And not only just the environment, but also with my behavior. Also, something else I noticed is, you know, we talked about the constraint. So I have to seek after him. This isn't just something where I can just kind of lay back and be like, okay, Jesus, come to me. No, I have to like actively go out and do the work and do the things that will help bring the spirit into my life and, you know, dig into my scriptures and actively seek after him and feel after him so that he will be there in my life and tarry a little longer with me, right? Okay, come follow me's next question. How do you recognize his presence in your life? Uh, One of the biggest keys to this, I think for me, is that whenever I feel emotions like peace or strength or joy in situations where it doesn't make sense to feel those things, I know that Christ is near. So when my life is super chaotic, but I'm feeling peaceful about it, I know that that is, you know, his presence in my life. Whenever I am going through something I know is really hard, but I feel like I've got the strength to do it, I know his grace is with me, enabling me to do that. Whenever I feel joy in situations that aren't very joyful, I know that that's him working in my life and him working for my good and my faith, trusting that he's doing that. And so that's one of the ways I recognize his presence in my life. So when I feel good things and it doesn't make sense that I should be feeling those things. Um, I also recognize his presence when I love others. I have kind of a cat-like personality. Um, if it were up to me, there would be like maybe five people in the world that I really like and I would spend all my time with. But I find as I come closer to him that I really start opening my heart to others. And I find that I really just enjoy being around other people and I love them just naturally. I like his love just, I guess I kind of feel his love for them. And that helps kind of like open my heart and give me more of kind of a dog-like personality, right? Where dogs love everyone and they think everyone's great. So it kind of changes me from a cat to a dog. (laughs) All right. I also noticed that one of the ways I recognize his presence in my life is when it's easier for me to choose the right. 
when I'm doing the things I know I need to be doing, when I'm praying, when I'm reading my scriptures, you know, when I'm following after him and doing all the things I need to do, then it's easier for me when something comes on the TV that's not nice. Even though it was a really good show and maybe I really wanted to see how it ended, I can flip the channel and realize, you know, yeah, I wanted to see how that episode ended, but that really was not what I needed to be watching. Or a book that everyone's talking about that's really, really great, but it's got some stuff in it that I really don't need to be seeing. It's easier for me to put it down and be like, okay, you know, the spirit having Christ tarrying with me and abiding with me is more important than however this book is going to go. I just need to put it down and walk away. And so when those decisions become easier for me, that's when I know that his spirit is with me as well. In what ways has the Holy Ghost testified of the divinity of Jesus Christ to you? Well, some of the ways that he's testified over the years, and I I also want to say, you know, there have been times where, yes, I felt definitely very strongly a testimony of Jesus Christ, and I get a very strong spiritual witness of it. But again, I think it's the little moments over time that have built up that have really strengthened my testimony. And I get these little glimpses of testifying of Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost testifying of Jesus Christ to me through the scriptures. When I read my scriptures and the Holy Ghost testifies that things I'm reading are true through quiet and peaceful moments where I'm just kind of meditating and thinking about Christ through music and song. That is a huge way that the Holy Ghost testifies to me. I love music. You guys probably have noticed, you know, because I put music in like all of my episodes. No, not all of them, Uh, but several of them have music. Music is one of the ways that the Holy Ghost really testifies to me of Jesus Christ really strongly. Um, Through art, I am a huge art buff. I love pictures and paintings, and I feel his spirit a lot when I look at art that represents him or represents the miracles that he did or things that he did. Um, You know, just amazing spirit comes through art. Also through prayer, when I am praying and talking to my Heavenly Father, and also, I'm not just not just formal prayer, you know, when I'm kneeling beside my bed, but, you know, I talk to God a lot during the day, several different times a day, like when I'm driving in my car, when I'm at work, when I'm by myself folding laundry, you know, in the shower, I talk to Him a lot. And so there's sometimes where I'm talking to Him and I'm thinking about things and, you know, we're having a conversation and something will testify of Christ in that conversation or Christ's love for me or, you know, God's love for me. And that's really where I feel, you know, the testimony strengthened of his love for me. So that's another way I kind of feel his love in my life. So that is my road to Emmaus. I hope that that made sense. Okay, the next section in Come Follow Me, it says, does Jesus Christ have a body? And I'm kind of going to skip over that because, you know, you guys can go in and read that stuff for yourself. It doesn't really ask any questions or discussion questions. But if you have kiddos or if, you know, you're a new convert to the gospel and you really want to know what we think about the physicality of Jesus Christ, I definitely recommend that you go and check that out because what we believe of him having a body of flesh and bone um, is different from some of the other beliefs out there. So, um, and it's a very important difference and a very amazing promise. So definitely go check that out. After that, the section that we see next is blessed are they that have not seen yet have believed. It says it can be difficult to believe that something is true without seeking physical proof. And it talks about Thomas, except I shall see, I will not believe. In response, the Savior said to Thomas, blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. How have you been blessed for believing in spiritual things you could not see? Throughout my life, There have been times where I've had different promises from the Lord, whether it be from a priesthood blessing or my patriarchal blessing or just an impression that I got. And when I act on those in faith and, you know, sometimes it isn't resolved right away. Sometimes I just have to keep acting on that impression or that promise that's in that blessing and just act like it's already here. And eventually it shows up. There are several promises that I'm still acting on that I know I probably will not see in this lifetime. But that's where, again, my testimony of the resurrection comes in. That is something that I haven't seen. I've just read about, right? We've read in the scriptures. I have a testimony of it because the Holy Ghost has testified to me of it. But I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen his flesh and bones. But I believe that it's there. And the joy and the peace and the strength that comes to me from my testimony of the resurrection is a huge blessing in my life. And it's something that keeps me going on days where, you know, it's kind of hard to keep going. So that is definitely a way that that has blessed my life. The next question is, what helps you have faith in the Savior even when you cannot see him? And I talked a little bit ago about all this, like, you know, 
all the things that I do to keep the Savior in my life. It's doing those little things that seem so insignificant sometimes, reading your scripture, saying your prayers, singing hymns or whatever it is, thinking about him just during the day, just taking a moment to think about your Savior. All those things help keep him in my life. It helps me have faith in my Savior even when I cannot see him. You know, to me, when I feel him so frequently in my life, he becomes such a real presence that sometimes he's realer to me than, you know, I have family members that don't live in Alabama anymore. They live, you know, in other states. And I feel like I'm in contact more with my Savior sometimes than I am with my own siblings. And so he becomes realer to me than my own siblings. And my siblings are very real and I love them very much. So please don't, I know one of them listens, so please don't take that the wrong way. But by having Christ with us all the time, he becomes a very real presence and force for good in our life. And I think that's one of the ways that I can have faith in him and demonstrate my faith in him without seeing him. All right. What other truths do you believe even without physical evidence? Well, there's lots of other truths, um, just in the gospel in general. Like, I believe very strongly in the priesthood, the priesthood power. Um, I've had several priesthood blessings that, you know, addressed things that no one else could have known or helped me through situations that were unbelievably hard. And I rely on those priesthood blessings a lot. And <laughs> there's been several blessings that predicted things or, you know, said, this is going to happen. And I was like, oh, no, no way, no way. And then it did. And in, it was answered in ways that I ne- had never even thought of. And so it's been amazing to me to see how pr- the priesthood and the power of the priesthood has been made manifest in my life. Something else, other truths that I believe, even without physical evidence, um, tithing is another huge one that I believe in. And, you know, a lot of times we think there's physical evidence for tithing. You know, I go and I pay my tithing with my last $10 and the money shows up somewhere in the mail or something like that. And, you know, we have those stories of physical evidence. But I also think that there's huge spiritual power in paying tithing. And I see that a lot in my life. You know, there's a quote out there somewhere. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But the feeling of it is true enough that I wanted to share it with you. There's a quote out there somewhere that says, As long as you are paying your tithing, you will not fall away from the church. Which seems kind of like, well, yeah, that's obvious. If I am placing such importance on the church that I'm actually giving them part of my money, then yeah, I'm not going to fall away from the church. But You know, tithing is something that I have paid through. Even the times in my life where I've really struggled with my testimony, I've still paid tithing. And I feel the extra measure of the Spirit that's in my life because I pay my tithing. You know, we read that verse all the time from Malachi where it talks about, you know, the windows of heaven being opened and the blessings being so big that you can't even receive it. But there's another part to that scripture that talks about the devourer being rebuked for your sake. And so I see that a lot of times that, you know, if you're struggling with temptation, if you're struggling with something that, you know, a devourer in your life of whatever sort it is, paying tithing will help rebuke that devourer. So I love paying tithing. One other truth I can think of off the top of my head of things that I believe without physical evidence. And this is something, a testimony that I've had just real recently. I mean, I've always kind of had a testimony of it, but just within like the last three months, I would even say, you know, with this renewed emphasis on family history. Um, Doing family history is something where I see the blessings of it in my life. There's an article out there, I'll post it to my Facebook, but it talks about the 10 different blessings that you get from doing family history and doing the temple work for your ancestors. And I see those blessings in my life. And so I believe in the power of family history and in the power of temple work when you're doing that for your ancestors and the blessings that come from it too. Even though I haven't necessarily seen anything, I still feel the blessings in my life. So those are some of the truths that I believe in even without physical evidence. And how can you continue to strengthen your faith in things which are not seen, which are true? And the way to do that is to act upon them. You know, like Lehi said, we are here to act and not be acted upon. And so it is important to use our agency and our free will to act upon the truths that we know. And as we act upon those truths, they'll be confirmed to us and we'll be able to act on greater and greater truths. So act upon those truths. That's the way I found really to continue to strengthen my faith in things which are not seen. Okay, the next section is the Savior invites me to feed his sheep. And it talks about the Savior's interaction with his apostles in John 21. You know, we have kind of the same thing where, you know, they're going and they're casting the net. He tells them to cast the net in. They cast the net in. There's so many fishes. And Peter jumps off the boat and (laughs) swims to shore. I mean, just crazy stuff. But what was interesting to me was the Savior's words in John 21, 15 through 17. You know, he asked Peter over and over and over again, Peter, lovest thou me? He asked him three different times. And so I was like, what is the significance of the three different times that he is asking 
you know, lovest thou me? There's a couple of different reasons I, I thought of this. Peter has denied him publicly three different times, okay? And he's asking him to publicly state that he loves Christ, that he will follow Christ. And that's kind of what he's doing doing here. Lovest thou me, you know, more than these. And there's interesting interpretations of the word love in this particular passage. And I want to read you something from my friends over at the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, um, EnduringWord.com. This is their interpretation of this particular passage here. It says, Jesus asked the question twice, Do you love me more than these? To use the word agapis in Greek, which in its biblical usage often speaks of an all-giving, uncaused, unselfish love. But Peter answered Jesus using the word philio which in biblical usage sometimes has more in mind a reciprocal love, a friendly affection. Some translations express Peter's answer as, I am your friend. So he's saying, Simon, lovest thou me? Like, and he's talking about an all-encompassing, overwhelming love. Simon, Peter, am I the most important thing in your life? And Simon's kind of like, I'm your friend. You know, which is, you know, bless his heart, especially because it's such a big change from who he was even three days ago, where he's like, no, I'm willing to die for you. And then he turns around and is like, no, I don't know who Jesus is. Right. And so to me, I see in this particular interchange, I see a lot of humility coming from Simon. He's realizing he's grown up, I think, a lot in the last three days. And so he's realizing, I don't know if I can give quite what you're asking of me right now, but I'm working on it, Lord. You know, I think that's kind of what he's saying. And I think the Lord Lord takes those little meager sacrifices that we bring to him and he makes them bigger. And so he asks again and he uses that agapis word again and he's saying, lovest thou me? You know, do you love me more than anything else? And Simon says, I like you like a friend. (laughs) Again, bless his heart. And then finally in in the third question that Jesus asks him, he says, Simon, do you love me like a friend? And Simon says, yes, I love you like a friend. And so that's what we see from the Greek translation, kind of what's going on in this particular passage. So to me, that shed some light. It showed me the great emotional maturity, I think, that Simon Peter has had over the last three days. So that was a really kind of interesting interchange there. But, you know, of course, once he tells the Lord he loves him, Christ says, feed my sheep, which is, you know, his mantle to everyone who follows him and who loves him. If you love Christ... Share that love with others. Minister to others. Take care of others. Spread that love everywhere that you go. Feed his sheep. You know, if we love Christ, that's what we need to be doing. And we need to be about his business, which is feeding the sheep, taking care of those around us, taking care of those who need us. Well, I think that's going to be about it for this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for putting up with all the tears. (laughs) I know there's been a lot of tears. Um, But I really enjoyed reading these passages. I have to tell you, though, they kind of made me sad. Like, I got to the end of each book, and I was really sad. I'm like, I'm really sad to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John go. Like, I know we're going to be moving on to Acts and things like that, but it really kind of was just, oh, it's sad. But you know what was interesting to me? One more thing before we end. What was interesting to me was to go in and read the last sentence of each one of those Gospels. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Okay, we're going to start with Matthew. So Matthew 28, and this is 19 and 20, and it says, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So that's our charge from Matthew. You know, the things that we've learned, go and teach them to all the nations. Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teach the people who follow me to observe the things that I've taught. And I am with you always. What an awesome blessing. You know, I love that. And then in Mark, we see in Mark 16, verse 20, it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Okay, what I love about that one is they preached the word everywhere, the Lord working with them. And the Lord doesn't have to be present. He doesn't have to physically be there to be working with you. But as we carry out his gospel and as we live his gospel, the Lord is working with us. What a cool promise that is, okay? And then, of course, confirming the word with signs following. Doctrine converts. And then the miracles, just kind of extra, right? True doctrine converts. The signs and miracles and stuff are just kind of an added bonus. So, again, confirming the word, right? I love that. 
Okay, Luke. The last sentence that we have in Luke is in Luke 24, 53. And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Which I think is great. Where does Christ want us to be? Continually in the temple. That's a great way to put it. Praising and blessing God in our everyday lives as well. So what a good, strong ending to Luke as well. All right, John. John 21, and this is 24 and 25. And this is kind of John's official testimony as he's signing off. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that this testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, and which, if it should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And that, of course, to me, you know, had all the little heart emoji eyes for this particular sentence because, you know, the entire world could not contain all the books. I'm like, that sounds like the world's biggest library. That sounds like it would be amazing if we had all the books and all the stories of everything that Christ did. So, you know, I got all excited because I'm like, oh, that'd be awesome to have them all written down because it would be an epic library of books. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I just love that he was talking about books in his final sentence sentence there. And so I just think it's really cool. So each one of those ending sentences, those closing sentences for each one of the Gospels was really beautiful to me. Um, And I really enjoyed reading those words, but at the same time, it made me really sad to say goodbye to those different Gospels. So I feel like we're kind of closing a chapter in Come Follow Me. And we are. We're like almost at the 50% point for the year um, in Come Follow Me. So we're almost halfway through, guys. I'm like, woo! halfway through. I don't want this to end. I know it'll keep going. It'll keep going next year too with the Book of Mormon. It's going to be awesome. But that is it today for this episode. Thank you for hanging out with me. Thank you for letting me testify to you of the resurrection of our Christ and of our Savior, our Redeemer of his might and his mercy, his love and his grace. I hope that it will go with you as you go throughout your week. And to help with that, remember how I said I really love music when it testifies of Christ? Well, I've got the perfect song to end this episode with. This is Because He Lives by Matt Mayer. Have a great week, y'all. I believe in the sun I believe in the risen one I believe I overcome By the power of His blood Amen
The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.